Good morning and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a pleasure to meet with you today and to study God's Word together. Um, it seems like we're going to be doing this for the next month or so through August, so keep tuning in, keep uh, reaching out to one another in the body of Christ and, and praise the Lord for His faithfulness that uh, He never leaves us alone, that He will speak to us, he will minister to our hearts, and he'll use us to minister to one another, our neighbors, our co-workers, and friends. We'll be in James chapter 4, if you want to turn there, and let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much that we can call you Father because of what Jesus has done, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the way through whom we can become your children, the one who has changed us forever by your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy and your compassions that they fail not, for great is your faithfulness. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, give us understanding and insight into your word, help us to draw near to you, and thank you that you will draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Conflict, it's a part of life on earth. I'm sure you've noticed uh, this is seen among nations, among individuals within those nations. People in and outside the church can be divided over their philosophy or their convictions or their beliefs. And we Christians, we can be annoyed and frustrated and, and distressed and grieved over the sinful condition of the world or the apparent weakness of the church. But until we acknowledge and repent of our own sin and humble ourselves before God in faith and obedience, we're really as misguided and as powerless as those we mourn over and we want to see saved. We deny ourselves the hope and the help of Christ if we are proud and are without repentance. And we say, well, yeah, I've done all that. But it's repentance is like the chores around your house. You made a meal last night for dinner, but you need to make more meals today if you're going to be uh, satisfied going to work. It's not something you do one time. It's something you need to keep doing. And uh, hygiene, taking showers, that's something that once you've done, you need to do it again. We're called to repentance whenever we see pride or selfishness uh, rise up in us, when it exposes itself. There is power, there is healing, there is hope for us in Jesus Christ, and we repent in Him. And when we read God's Word, it's almost like the white glove test. You know, the person that slips on the white glove, and they're, they're checking to see how clean a surface is, and they're feeling things that we didn't think to clean, and they can expose that dirt and go, wow, look, look at how much you missed. And really, God does that in our lives, where we think we're right with Him, we think we've repented, and we may have, genuinely. But because we are in this body of flesh and because we're weak and prone to sin, we will sin. And that need to repent and turn to the Lord and draw near to Him, it, uh, the Lord uses and re really redeems our sin to accomplish that. He takes the spotlight straight to our sin, shows us our need, and provides Himself as our salvation. And the conduct and the manner of our lives as believers, it flows from faith in God and obedience to Him. And in this letter, James has exposed the contradictions in the lives of many believers. 
these people had faith in God. He calls them brethren over and over, beloved brethren, that they had faith in God with partiality towards others. They had dead faith that was not accompanied by works. The same mouth they used to bless God, they used to curse men made in the image of God. There was envy and strife in their lives because they walked according to worldly wisdom. Some were ambitious to teach when they would have been better served to show how much they knew by humbling themselves before the Lord, by their godly conduct done in the meekness of wisdom. Our relationship with God we refer to as a walk because when we walk, it's progressive. We walk with Him because it involves taking step after step of, in faith in Him. And by obedience to Him, we draw near and remain near to Him by His grace. And today is a new opportunity to walk in step with our Savior. So starting in James 4, verse 1, we begin. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James has wisdom from God and insight into his readers, being a man himself, and he takes aim at believers who would likely deny or protest that, that they, they had any bitter envy or strife in their hearts. But those who will deny the disease will also deny the cure. So James bids them to identify the source of wars and fights among them. And this war and fight, it's like battle controversy, strife, contention, struggles for control that each one was dealing with. And it's really fitting this passage comes after the bit on the tongue in chapter 3 because a lot of the battles we enjoin, they're not with swords and spears, but with cutting remarks, arguments, heart-piercing comments that we fire full automatic from hearts cocked with pride. We're like, what wars? What fights? James says that conflict, that controversy, those arguments, that defensive and combative attitude that you have, that spiritual warfare that you complain about, it comes from your own selfish desires. Does this sound familiar? One person makes a comment. Another person contradicts that comment. That is offensive to the first person. I mean, this happened to me just yesterday, and I did not respond wisely. I respond foolishly and with arrogance. And so one person, their volume starts to go up. They get annoyed. Another person shuts down, and they, they, they try to have control over the argument by silencing it. Another throws themselves into entertainment or work to just get their mind off of this struggle. But while that's happening, and the situation's out of their control, they blame the other when they're both responsible for creating the conflict they're retreating for reinforcements. It's like they're digging into their position and they're justifying themselves and they're condemning others. They're refusing to surrender, forgive, or love. And let me say, the Lord has, this, has written this for me and he's written it for you. Praise the Lord, there's forgiveness in him when we realize that we are walking in pride and that when we use our tongues to be harsh and rude towards one another. And this is something that I have been repenting of of late. The source of wars and fights is due to our own selfishness and unfulfilled desires. This is what James tells us. If we don't have 
or we don't get what we want, we become angry, frustrated, we attack, we blame others, we uh, hate even, all while coveting what we cannot possess. James says, you fight and war. And the question is, are you willing to submit to this assessment? He's just telling them very plainly, you do this. You may not think you do, but you do. You have this conflict within you. This conflict spills out into the world around you. And really, your conflict is with God. It's not with the people around you. It's not with the situation. You have a conflict with God because of the pride that is in your heart. The most mild-mannered among us will be entrenched in conflict with others when we declare war on God by discontent. So we have unfulfilled desires. There's things we've set our hearts on, we're not getting it, and we can't grasp it because of our own selfishness. Drawn out conflicts and resentment, it reveals a lack of satisfaction, a lack of rest in God, which is only received by faith in Him. Matthew Henry, he wrote this, What is shrouded under a specious pretense for zeal for God and religion often comes from man's pride. From lust of power and dominion, lust of pleasure or lust of riches, arise all the broils and contentions that are in the world. It is therefore the right method for the care of con- cure of contention to lay the axe to the root and mortify those lusts that war in the members. One reason we do not have, James says, is because we do not ask God. Kids, when they're learning how to share, they're told like, oh, you want to play with that toy? Well, don't just take it from them, ask. And so the kid's like, okay, and he goes and says, may I please play with that toy? And they go, the other kid says, no. Well, what do they do? Are they like, oh, okay, that's fine. No, they might cry. They may try to take it from them. They may throw the toy that they have down on the ground and stomp it because they're not getting what they want. Brothers and sisters, age does not refine our attitudes or our hearts at all. We can be very much the same. Asking is a rule of God's kingdom. Forgiveness, salvation, a glorious entrance to heaven is promised to those who ask, believing in God. I like what Spurgeon wrote concerning Psalm 2. He says, remember this text, Jehovah says to his own son, "'Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance.'" and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. If the royal and divine Son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Why should it be? A valid point. We can be much more apt to speak to people or do a Google search than to seek the Lord and his wisdom If we had our way, we would rather not humble ourselves. We would rather not wait for an answer. We want instant gratification. We'd like an answer now that we can work with rather than waiting on the Lord and being of good courage because he is going to strengthen our heart. So you pray. In your praying, do you make specific requests to God? And having made those requests, will you wait for them to be fulfilled? Will you be obedient to what he says? And we can fall into the trap of using prayer as a means of venting our frustration with God without ever actually asking Him to do something specific. We, we've, we've told Him our gripes, our concerns. We've aired our complaint before Him. But what are we asking Him to do? And a lot of times, if we do take Him to take action, we do ask Him to take action, 
It's to change someone else or change our circumstances that are more in line with what we want, right? Because we want something. That's why we're asking him. Rather than admitting that we're sinful, that we're helpless and hopeless without him, and ask him to provide wisdom, discernment to know, and strength to do his will. James doesn't hold back. Chapter 4, verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James says one reason why we neglect, we, we lack something is because we neglect to ask God. Another reason why we lack is because we ask for the wrong things with the wrong motives. Sinful motives. This word pleasures, it's hedone, which is the word hedonism is derived. So you're, you want to spend the thing you request for on your pleasures, on yourself. Now this philosophy of hedonism, it's the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence while trying to minimize and avoid pain at all costs. It places the highest um, value on pleasure for self, where it's being heard, being vindicated, being accepted, uh, not just for money. The irony of this pursuit is it can never deliver and meet our expectations because selfishness is insatiable. We'll continue to desire more and more. Covetousness, it has no end. We can obtain what we want, but then we, are, we still remain dissatisfied because we're looking for something for satisfaction that's not God. And then we keep moving the posts, so to speak. And uh, that's not where satisfaction is found in getting what you want. It's living a life in submission to the Almighty God who loves us and has accepted us already, who's provided us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If Jesus was an adherent of hedonism... None of us would be saved because he would have avoided the cross that was intensely painful. Jesus did not stumble over that future prospect of pain. It says, for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. If Jesus was a humanist, mankind would have been doomed as well. For this belief, it asserts that man can be good and make a good life for himself and others without God. This runs totally contrary to the gospel because Jesus is God and he is only good and it's by grace we are saved and not by our efforts. James is calling out the spiritual adultery of believers who had chosen friendship with the world by adopting a self-centered worldview rather than a God-honoring and God-serving one. It's like the people within the church, they had the same values as the secular worldview around them. To Jewish readers, the things that James saying, it harkens back to the pictures in the Old Testament of God's people committing adultery with him by going after idols. It says, for instance, in Ezekiel 16.32, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. So Israel had been unfaithful to God. Marriage, we know, it's a binding, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman before God. 
And God made a covenant of law with his people with conditions they agreed to meet. I will be your God and you will be my people. And they said, right on, everything that God says we will do. Yet they did not obey him. As his people, they were assured of his provision, his protection, his guidance, his help in time of trouble. And these are some great benefits. They're like, sign us up. This sounds terrific. They were pleased to have those benefits from God, but their privileged position did not strip them of their sinfulness, of their covetousness, of their selfishness and deceit. Jeremiah 3.20, it says this, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. The word treacherous, it means to betray trust. It's a violation of allegiance. It conveys something done covertly or deceitfully. Judas, he was treacherous in answering the call to follow Christ, in being the treasurer, holding the money bag, yet he was stealing from it. He chose to follow Christ and to sit at his table. And at other times, at the same time, he was conversing with the chief priests how to betray him into their hand. The words of Jesus were confirmed in Matthew 6, 24. No, man can, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Judas could not serve Jesus and himself. His love for money, it led him to despise Christ and to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. So when our desires, when our affections are on the things of the world and the wisdom of the world rather than God, we will become opposed to and hostile toward God and what he has said. No one at the same time can claim to love two masters and be loyal to them when they give contradictory demands. You have to choose one or the other. Will it be God or will it be anything else? Please turn to Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 1, for a word of exhortation to believers. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. Paul wrote, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are, here, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Brothers and sisters, how often do we seek those things which are above where Jesus is? Do you even know what you're looking for? That's kind of important, right? If we're going to set our minds on things above where Jesus is, well, what are we looking for? If you told me to go through a toolbox and find some tool that I don't know what it is because I don't know the name, you would need to describe it to me, and then I could look for it. Well, our affections are to be set on things of God that will endure, like His wisdom, His strength, His guidance, His promises, His grace. God, out of His goodness, has given us eternal life. He's given us an inheritance in heaven that cannot be taken away. And so we are to put to death the sins. It says, put to death the sin of our members. It says, like, put 
to death your members which are on the earth. So a member is like a part of you. Sins that you've adopted into your life and ways that you think and live sexually, unclean thoughts, worldly appetites, covetousness, which is defined as idolatry. Sort of put off the sins that mark the man of flesh, the old man that lived dead in sins before Christ, and were to put on the new man patterned after Christ in holiness and godliness. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Nor are we at the mercy of the world. Praise God for that. Jesus said in John 16, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's overcome the world and the powers of it through the power of God. And this is affirmed again in 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. That enables us to walk wisely, to walk with our Savior who has overcome the world, and our union with Him is defined now by grace, by grace through faith in Him, so we stand. Back to James chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who, dwell, spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 5 is not a direct quote from any other passage in Scripture. It alludes to the character of God as revealed in the Bible, that God is jealous. He commanded his people to destroy the altars and images of the people they would conquer. Um, as the parenthetical verse in Exodus 34, 14 says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, when we're jealous, our jealousy is often connected with insecurity, fear, a desire for control. But God's jealousy, it's righteous, it's loving, it's gracious and merciful. It's from a desire that we would have no rival in our lives for Him. He's ever vigilant like a loving husband is concerned when his wife is beginning to entertain uh, flattery and comments from interested suitors. I mean, they're married. What is she doing flirting? What is she doing hanging around looking for attention from guys who have no good intentions for her? So there's that concern there. That's the jealousy that's being spoken of, one that's, in, one that's from a position of righteousness God's desire, his yearning for each one of us is that we would choose him freely rather than walk in the wisdom of the world, fueled by lusts, fighting to get our own way. Now, how do people in the world, how have you seen people deal with an unfaithful spouse? Well, becoming angry, breaking up, throwing their stuff out on the street. You know, you've seen it on social media where everyone's Belongings are just strewn on the front lawn, uh, damaging their possessions, insults, writing stuff on their car, public humiliation. Some have waited until the wedding ceremony or the reception to out their spouse's unfaithfulness for maximum shame. But what does God do? But he gives more grace. That is awesome. As believers, our, our eyes are open to the goodness of God and his, 
his restraint, his patience toward everyone, and that his kindness leads us to repentance. He doesn't withhold or remove grace from us, but he adds to it because he's infinitely good, loving, and merciful. All sinners deserve judgment and separation from God forever, yet he calls out to the foolish, to the condemned, to the proud, so they might be saved. His aim is reconciliation, restoration. He wants us to respond in love to him. Most of us give little grace to those whom we should think we think should know better, right? We can give more grace to the stranger or to the person that we we have no understanding of much more than the person that we've instructed or we've taught. And we say, well, you should know better. And we don't give them the grace. But God does. He gives more grace. To his unfaithful people, God gives more grace when they, re- they can receive when they humble themselves. James says that God resists the proud who assert their way is right, the ones who justify themselves. This word resist, it's more than just hold back. It's to set in battle array against. Being lifted up with pride, that is a declaration of war upon God. God will meet that person in battle, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. The proud man, he might imagine that he's fighting against the forces of darkness, when in reality, it's God who's rallying the troops to fight against him. God will set the trap for the person to fall into. The hole that they've dug, they will fall into themselves. This happens so often in the history of Israel. I read about it in my devotions this morning. When God's people forsook him, he sent foreign enemies to conquer them. The Levites, they were at one point told to turn their swords against their brethren because they sinned by idolatry. God sent an evil spirit to King Saul to chasten him to repentance when his heart was lifted up with pride. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. Those who are proud and haughty, God will make war against them. God will set himself in battle array against them because they have vaunted themselves up against him. But the Christian who is humble before the Lord can rest in perfect peace, away from the strife and the conflict that's caused by pride and selfishness. David Guzik, he wrote this in the Enduring Word Commentary. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of my merits, whether real or imagined. But grace will not deal with me on the basis of anything in me, good or bad, but only on the basis of who God is. God's the sole giver of grace this world cannot know and cannot receive in that proud posture. It's born out of active love of God for everyone, and it's the humble that can receive it and be exalted by it. Knowing God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. To submit, it means to be subordinate, to obey, to be in subjection to. Peter, he urged believers to abstain from fleshly lusts, to walk in a godly manner. He says this in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those 
who do good. Well, in Sydney right now, we have many restrictions placed upon us um, by the New South Wales government, and we can choose to submit to them or to disobey them. You might have proof that masks are useless, but they are required in public places, and therefore, we're to wear them as if Jesus has asked us to. From a biblical perspective, my responsibility for God is to submit to the ordinances. If a police asks me, well, why am I traveling outside the, uh, the area that I should, uh, I should show him, the, uh, him or her my ID, and if I am fine that I should pay that fine, I'm to submit to the ordinances of government. But like some people will refuse to submit to the government, mandates proud Christians, they can refuse to submit to God in everything. We ought to submit to God. He's our creator. He is the one who has saved us. He's the one who has given us these everlasting and great and precious promises. And submission to God is the only way to have peace with God. So knowing him, we submit to him. No man can serve two masters, but it's guaranteed we all have a master. And if your master is not God, it might as well be the devil himself. Spurgeon said this, If you do not submit to God, you will never resist the devil, and you will remain constantly under his tyrannical power. All who submit to God can resist the devil, and he will be made to flee. The devil is not afraid of you. The devil fears God because he trembles before him, knowing his time is short. God resists the proud. We are called to resist the devil. This word means to stand against or oppose. Adam and Eve, they did not resist the devil. Eve conversed with Satan. She listened to his lies and was led to justify disobedience to God to get what she wanted to be like God, right? She had a desire. She coveted the power of God and said, well, I can be like God going down this path. I'm going down that path. I'm going to eat of the tree that God said not to. And Adam did know better because he did not make a stand for righteousness and what God had said, but he gave in to his wife and received and ate from her hand to please her and to please himself. When Jesus was tempted, however, by the devil. He resisted him. He responded with the word of God and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Adam and Eve cursed for their sin and death passed to all men. Jesus came and destroyed sin and has made a way for us to have eternal life and forgiveness through him. Though powerful and persuasive because of our folly, Know that Satan is a conquered foe. He can be resisted by every soul that submits to God. If you're trying to fight and resist the devil, but you haven't surrendered and submitted to God, well, you are fighting a losing battle. You have already lost because in Christ, he is the only one who has overcome. There's no effort of the flesh. There's no willpower or wisdom of the world that can resist the devil. But the humble soul that repents and looks to God has strength of God to overcome. Satan brought death. Jesus brought eternal life. Who will you submit to? James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Submission to God is seen in resisting the devil and drawing near to God. When I was a kid, I had some magnets I used to play with, and it was fascinating. I was like, how does this work? How do these things uh, are attracted to each other? And so I'd place them on the table and see how close I could get before the other one would shoot over and click together. But then I realized that if I flipped one the other direction, they actually repelled each other. And I would place one magnet on the table and tell me, you've done this, right? You're pushing the other one. It's like, uh, I'm like using the force to move this around the table. It was kind of cool. And then I was like, I'm going to try to force them together. And the magnets were really strong and fiddly, and I couldn't get them to seat on each other until I flipped them around and Oh, that's easy. They just go right together. See, it doesn't matter how far you feel from God or how deep-seated your pride has been, that you've been repelling God by your pride. He gives grace to the humble. If you will humble yourselves, if you will repent, if you will turn, well, then He will draw near to you. He's already drawn near in Christ. Will you draw near to Him by humbling yourself before Him? by submitting and surrendering your life to Him today. This is an absolute truth. This is not odds. Like, the odds are better, and we like good odds. The odds, you will likely win, or things will be better if you do this. We will change our lives for just the chance of better odds. But this is a guarantee that God has given. Draw near to Him. He will draw near to you. And we do so by humbling ourselves. Matthew Henry wrote this, Those that draw near to God in the way of duty shall find God drawing near to them in the way of mercy. If there be not a close communion between God and us, it is our fault, not His. God is always merciful. He always gives grace to the humble. We try to earn by doing what God has promised only to give. And so we deny ourselves the benefits of His grace if we will just believe and submit ourselves to Him, we can receive that grace and walk in it. So how can we draw near to God, a God that we cannot see? Like if you said, draw near to that post, I could walk towards that post, maybe. But how do we draw near to God? In a word, repentance. We draw near to God when we admit our part in the strife and the conflict the warfare that we're experiencing within ourselves, the discontent in our hearts. We draw near to God and we confess we have been fighting against Him because of our selfish desires, our pride, and our envy. We draw near and we admit our lack of asking God and seeking Him for His wisdom. And when we have asked that we asked for the wrong reasons, we see, yeah, it was selfish. It was selfish motives why I said that and why I desired that. It wasn't about God at all. It was just about me. It was because of how I was feeling I said that, but I was not honoring God with my speech. We've struck up a friendship with the world. We valued what's perishing more than seeking the Lord and seeking the things that are above to confess this to Him. We've been lifted up with pride. We imagined we were targets of Satan because we were so useful for God when we were living in opposition to God by our pride. Repentance is not admitting past wrongdoing. It's admitting we are wrong. 
We didn't just do the wrong things. I am wrong. Something in me is wrong. I didn't just do the wrong thing. I didn't just say the wrong thing. I am wrong. When we start to admit that before the Lord and humble ourselves and that God is right and he's got us nailed and we've been resisting him, it's not the devil we've been resisting, it's God we've been resisting, then we, be, we can humble ourselves and begin to obey him. As faith is accompanied by corresponding works, so repentance is shown by humility and obedience to God. Adam Clark said this, without true and deep repentance, you cannot expect the mercy of God. God is merciful even when we don't expect it. Even when we should not expect it, we can know He is ever merciful. He is gracious. We ought to expect to receive the mercy of God because God's promised it, not because we deserve it. You know when your hands are, are sticky, right? You've brushed along the table and there's like, oh, some orange juice or something sticky is on the table or there's grit under our nails because we've been pulling weeds in the garden and we wash our hands. When we see sin, we're to seek to be rid of it, not just to shrug it off like it's nothing. We're to cleanse our hands of sin, to purify our hearts of double-mindedness. That's vacillating between guilt and taking pride in our efforts to reform. Too often, we can ignore our sin or just laugh it off or justify it or blame someone else for, for, for the situation that really it's a problem within us. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. They are the ones who will be comforted. Those who genuinely mourn their own sin, they will be the ones exalted by God's grace. James addressing the self-righteous, the self-sufficient, and the selfish who shrugged off their own sin because they would not mourn their sin because they were not broken and contrite in humility before God. They were blind to its corrupting influence over them. They remained in it. We can mourn people who do not have Christ as their Savior, but God would have sinning Christians mourn their sin Repent so they can be exalted by His grace, so that they can know Him, so that He can draw near to them. Because in their sinful condition and their proud arrogance, it's like we are repelling Him. We're resisting the Lord. Things have to be broken before they can be fixed. We have to be mourning and broken and contrite over our sin before we will really repent. And once we have, it's like, we go, why didn't I do this before? Why wasn't I broken for my sin? How could I be so blind to deny myself the opportunity God has given to know Him and to receive grace from Him, that God redeems us and our sin to draw Him close with bands of love? James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. But seeing and honoring God is the most glorious passion and pursuit possible, that He is our life. And a lot what passes as humility before men is really just pride in disguise. But God sees the heart. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we submit to God. Pride exalts self, while the humble look to the Lord and exalt Him. Now, humility, it does not mean living in perpetual grief and mourning over your sin. 
The end result of repentance is rejoicing because now God has drawn near to us. We have drawn near to Him and we have fellowship one with another again. Humbling ourselves before God results in grace, God lifting us up, drawing near to us, and rejoicing. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 4, and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Grieve and mourn over your sin. Wash your hands of it, but rejoice in Him. In Psalm 51, when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he said, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast, or yeah, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Then in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. He was broken for his sin, but he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. If you're not rejoicing, believer, maybe you've not repented. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. God will resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your wisdom in showing us our sin, our sin that kept us from you in our unregenerate state, and also the sin that easily uh, influences our thoughts and minds even now after receiving Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, that you give grace to the humble, that you resist the proud, and we ought to resist the devil. Thank you that we have that promise. If we draw near to God, you will draw near to us. And I pray that we would be setting our minds on things above, not on things of the world, that we would not adopt or justify having worldly wisdom anymore, but we would choose to walk in humility, in submission, in obedience before you, because you are good. You are glorious and awesome. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for deliverance and that he has overcome and that we can overcome through him. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, minister your truth to the hearts of your people, that we would honor and glorify your name, that we would, we would notice that, and we would admit that the strife and contention, those wars and fightings that are among us and within us, they come from us, and it's you who has made a declaration of peace if we will humble ourselves and walk in the light of the gospel. And I pray you would just continue to minister your truth in our hearts by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.